Hello, friends. It's Thursday, January 11th, and this is your Chop Up. On today's show, we take a look at the ongoing breakdown in the consent manufacturing factory from someone working on the inside. We're joined today by the author of We've Got People and the newly released The Squad, AOC, and the Hope of a Political Revolution, Ryan Grimm. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Lovely to be here. Ryan, there's obviously a ton of stuff to talk about, and I do want to get to um, the case being presented at the IJC by South Africa uh, regarding Israel and Palestine and the charge of genocide. And I want to get into like uh, just a lot, a lot of the ongoing issues about like how the media is covering this conflict. But I want to begin, I guess, just sort of on like a human level, because I, I Ryan, I, I watch all the clips of you and others at these State Department press briefings asking questions that I'd like to see somebody answer. Ryan, how like, my, my question is just how do you do it? And how do you maintain your composure in the face of some of these answers that you get to these questions? I guess it's uh, maybe I've been in D.C. for so long at this point that it just the stuff just kind of washes over me. Sometimes the only one I ever kind of thought about, I was like, what am I even doing here? Was an interview that I had with uh, Ted Cruz a month or two ago. That one, I was like, this is just at one point he said, like, I got him to say, like, I condemn nothing Israel does or even like suggests it will do. This is a, this is after I'd asked him to, if he would condemn like, uh, you know, the guy who said, let's nuke Gaza, who was even condemned by like the not Netanyahu government. And it's at that point, it's like, well, what is my point even here? Like if you if there's nothing that I can get out of you then what is even the point with the State Department, at least like. They might say something that like rattles some cages somewhere and then some and then some ambassador calls them and you, you never know what's going to shake loose from the State Department. So that, that kind of keeps me going there. But yeah, it, it's not it's not easy. I mean, you know, we've we've talked before about State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller. He seems to be like sort of the star of a lot of these. And, you know, like, Ryan, it's it's you. I've seen um, uh, the journalist Saeed Arikat, uh, Max mm-hmm. Blumenthal and others are asking very pointed questions of these representatives of the U.S. government for which there is no answer to. There is no way that they can answer these questions, honestly. And I guess like I, I was just like sort of flavor, like what's it like to be in that room it, like and, and just, I don't know, sort of have to professionally withstand their utter contempt for humanity. It, it is so weird because you know that there are American values that like they have to pretend to stand for, like the Pakistan stuff. Uh, and also like the Israel-Palestine stuff has been some of the most difficult to like absorb in that sense, because like when it comes to Pakistan, for instance, they just keep repeating this mantra that they're supportive of free and fair elections. And I mean, could you give, could you give some, sorry, Ryan, could you just give some background on that? Because like, yeah. like one, one of the, one of your recent clips was essentially you getting a representative of the state department to basically say, we don't need free and fair elections in Pakistan. Could you just <laughs> yeah, give us he, some background on that, on that specific yeah, uh, issue? He, he accidentally said, uh, and we will continue to support democratic suppression. But it feels like election rigging of this level would merit sanctions if any other, if a Maduro-like government did something like this. It would seem like uh, the State Department might come down a little harder. This is 250 million person democracy. Uh, and we will continue to support uh, democratic suppression and uh, a vibrant democracy in Pakistan, but I don't have anything to preview from here. Pakistan and the, the AP reporter followed up immediately. You, you just said that you support democratic suppression. In, in Pakistan, he's like, no, no, no. I meant expression, democratic expression, which is funny because like democratic expression, that's not even a phrase. Like who's who's what is that? What does that even mean? But the funniest part, of course, is that the U.S. 
you know, organized the overthrow of Imran Khan back in back in 2022. Like they they pushed him out of office and th- and we obtained and published the document that showed like the State Department official basically directing uh, the uh, the government of Pakistan, the military of Pakistan to go ahead and push Imran Khan out with a with a vote of no confidence. If they do, quote, all will be forgiven. And if you don't, it will be a very tough road ahead. Like it was it was very clear, like mafia language that was used. They push him out. He's now in jail. When candidates are going to file for office, like they get arrested, like literally just straight up get arrested, like rank and file down ballot candidates. And so I, it's kind of enjoyable isn't the word, but it's nice to be able to put that stuff before him. Because when I asked about that one, I was following up from a Pakistani reporter earlier. I wasn't planning on asking about that, but a Pakistani reporter asked a question about the elections, kind of got blown off. And I'm like, well, okay, but wait a minute. Let's, let's talk about the fact that they're like arresting everybody. Wouldn't you sanction Venezuela if they were doing this? Like, aren't you sanctioning Venezuela for doing less? And, you know, putting that discrepancy in front of them and making them handle it is the only thing you can kind of get out of it. Like just putting it, putting the hypocrisy on raw display. Well, when it, when it comes to putting hypocrisy on raw display, I mean, I, I, I'm struck right now by, like I said, the, the attempts to deal with this, the, the criminal case of intention to commit genocide going on at the International Court of Justice right now, where South Africa has presented a case that, um, look, the, the case will probably take years to decide, but like the case is about like their intent to commit genocide, not that, not that they've already done one, but the crucial part is that it, it, the, the, ruling, the ruling that can be made immediately would be a request for them to cease all military operations until they can figure this out, or like the, or the clear genocidal intent has been signaled. Our State Department and government and media have gone, gone into overdrive to just state over and over again that this case is meritless. Ryan, I'm wondering like, if you can think of other examples in your career as a journalist in which the, sort of, the, the, the efforts to keep the ship of state and the, the ship of propaganda going like, have, have become so strenuous on behalf of the Western media and, and, and the governments that they sort of collude with, I suppose, in this case. Like, can you think of another example of like, a breakdown this bad in the consensus manufacturing machine? Because the one I think of is the Iraq War, mm-hmm. where it seemed like everyone got on board with the idea that Saddam has WMDs. But the difference is the, the public believed that at the time it was going on. It took years for that consensus to fall apart. What do you make of this current effort in which like, that's, the same mechanisms are being used, but they just aren't working? Yeah, the Iraq War is the only one that I can think of, but you're, you're right. That's, that's the difference. This is... This is unique in that way. And, and the, the press is, at least the press in, in this press room in the State Department is starting to kind of move on it a little bit. One of the more satisfying questions I got to ask Miller was, you know, do you guys at the State Department feel like you have exposure to war crimes charges? Like, are you, are it, I've been briefed. Are you, are you concerned? Those are, the, those are the fun questions to ask because there isn't really a very good answer to that. Is there any concern within the State Department that State Department officials could be roped in to this, this prosecution? Uh, no, I will say that, that uh, as it relates to the State Department, we have been committed to addressing the humanitarian situation uh, in Gaza and have made a priority of preventing, as we, I just said in, your, in response to your question, the displacement of Palestinians. Uh, 
I will also say, though, that genocide is, of course, a heinous atrocity, um, one of the most heinous atrocities that any individual can commit. Uh, those are allegations that should not ma be made lightly. And as it, it pertains to the United States, we are not seeing any acts that constitute genocide. And what he said actually shook loose some news and shook loose a bunch of follow up questions. He said, you know, we've determined that there are no acts of genocide going on. Um, he also interestingly said, we have pushed very hard uh, for the Israelis to let humanitarian aid into Gaza. In other words, even if they're doing something like we've pushed them to like not kill as many people, which there's daylight between him and John Kirby on that. You know, Kirby is like, you know, and there's no, there's no red lines and it's, and it's offensive and baseless that they're even, you know, bringing these charges. So that's also fun to try to find, you know, discrepancies between the state department and, and the white house. But then the rest of the the, the State Department press corps starts saying, wait a minute, you determined that there's no genocide? Because now, now there's a story for them. There's a process story, and they love process stories. They're like, that means if you've determined something, there were meetings, there was data gathered, there were things gathered, there were people who were in these meetings, and people took positions, and you came to a determination. And he's like, well, 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 I don't want to get into any internal processes right here. Right. Like, okay, but you just said that you did determine. So what, and so now the, now the press corps is pushing on that, at least say like, if, okay. And if, if you haven't yet, like, why not? You were able to determine within like a few hours that Russia was committing genocide against right. Ukrainians. Uh, why can't, you know, why is it so difficult to come up with something here? Right. And this gets into my, my favorite um, deflection of any accusation of genocide or war crimes against the state of Israel. And, and let's be honest here, against the United States of America, because we are yeah. like the unspoken party in the dock at the ICJ right now is the United States government. And the answer, the, 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 the phrase that I've heard repeated over and over again by either by representatives of the State Department or the UK Foreign Office is, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer like and these are people whose job it is to like adjudicate or like at least like deal in the realm of international law and they're all claiming to I'm not an expert on international <laughs> relations I'm not an expert in international law I'm not a lawyer I would need to understand this blah 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 in light of the example you just said about how like you don't need no one needs to have a fucking degree in the law to look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine and be like that's wrong or killing all these innocent civilians yep, is can't tantamount to a war crime and with this, they absolutely can't do it. And they, and I'm right. I'm wondering, did you watch any of the South African uh, presentation of their case at the ICJ today? I, I, I did. Um, somebody was pointing out to me that it, it, it basically was a completely like globally legitimate gray zone uh, live stream. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you, there would be no daylight between the two because there was this one clip where the, one of the South African attorneys is just for like 20 straight minutes, 20 minutes. Yeah. Reading quotes. And he's like, let me tell you who this is from the prime minister, the president, the head of the army, the national security minister, uh, and on and on and on. It's, it's, I can't wait to see uh, the rebuttal from Israel tomorrow. Cause well, imagine having that job. Yeah. And no, I, I would highly recommend if anyone hasn't seen, um, even even just clips from it. I mean, it it is if even someone who's watched this every day for three months now. It is stunning to see it all assembled in such a way. And I'm struck by like the the, the sort of the flailing reactions to this really demonstrate the difference between presenting a moral, political, and strategic case in a media forum versus a courtroom. Because in a courtroom, they really can't 
control the narrative. And the way they're controlling the narrative is that I'm not going to see any of this on any TV channel in the United yes. States. Well, Bill, Belichick got fired, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no, I, I, I spent all last night watching Stephen A. Smith's takedown of Jason Whitlock. I don't have time for the uh, South African uh, genocide case today. I've had enough of that fat bastard. But uh, Ryan, I'm curious if you, if you saw, you're saying like you're, you're looking forward to see how they're going to refute it tomorrow. But I'm wondering if you saw the New York Times's coverage of this case today on the front page by um, Isabel Kirshner and John Elligon. Did not, did not read their piece yet. What was, what well, was their take? I mean, what was fascinating about it is, as you mentioned, like 20 minutes of this of this court presentation was just reading statements from Israeli government officials that are, you know, inducements to commit genocide, announcements of intent to raise Gaza to the earth and everyone inside of it. The way this was described in the New York Times is uh, South Africa filed an 84 page application to the court in December, laying out its claims and sending statements by Israeli officials, which it says constitute clear and direct public incitement to genocide, which has gone unchecked and unpunished. Israelis have pointed out that some of the evidence South Africa cites is, sim, is slim. Among the examples is a comment made in a television interview by Israeli pop star Eyal Golan, who said Israel should erase Gaza. That is the only example that they cite from <laughs> The, the, from the court case. That's the only example. And then the, most of the rest of the article is, it talks about October 7th and strongly implies that South Africa is doing this as a cat's paw of Russia. And so if you if that's where you're getting your news, which a lot of people are getting their news from the New York Times, you, know, you come away from this thinking this is just uh, another uh, anti-Semitic smear job against, this, against the state of Israel. They're, they're rolling up pop stars here to try to make their case. And yeah, exactly. It's like a cat's paw for Russia, or you also see all kinds of, uh, semi veiled racism, uh, Fetterman saying like South African, just sit this one out. I'm not even sure what the implication there was, but you see a bunch he of was, people he talking was referring about crime to the, rates. Uh, what he claims is the genocide of white South African farmers. Oh God. Yeah. That, that one was confusing because in the first clip that, uh, I saw that there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, if you were subtitling it, uh, it would be 50% inaudible. <laughs> there would be a lot of that. But he did eventually get around to yeah, accusing them of doing white genocide, which um, really makes you wonder what Giselle is letting him do on his baby tablet. <laughs> I thought for a second he still thought apartheid South Africa was in power. And then, that was then be, that was what I thought too. That was yeah. <laughs> like, okay, that's legit. Apartheid South Africa should sit this one out. <laughs> Well, yeah. you know, it's interesting, like if, if these are the reactions in English to South Africa's case, which, you know, run the gamut yeah. from South Africa is Hamas to South Africa is poisoning and, 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 you know, defaming the legacy of the great Nelson Mandela by doing this to Israel. However, if you search in Hebrew on Twitter right now for the term South Africa or International Court of Justice, uh, you will see that the, their reaction to that, which is mostly just calling them monkeys who fell out of trees. And some suggestions that maybe they should go to war. Yeah, I've, that, I've, that, I've seen some of that too. Yeah. yeah, if not South Africa, then uh, Holland, I guess. Yes, but I mean, I, I guess like also, I, just as like a, as as a member of the media and someone who who does this professionally and observes it, I mean, like I'm wondering the ways in which like the horror of this conflict is managed by the media in terms of the language that they use, and I'm wondering if you can comment on the ways in which like Israeli deaths or October seventh is repeatedly referred to as a horror, a massacre, a slaughter. And then, like, Palestinians being killed in far, far greater numbers is sort of like a blast occurs or 
mm-hmm. you know, the trajectory of a bullet um, interceded with the skull of an elderly woman. Like, I mean, just like the, can you talk about like the sort of the perception management in which the media does to sort of contain the horror of this conflict and direct it to only one side? It's it's hard to describe, but it 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 feels like you're doing something subversive anytime you apply universal principles in these in these press rooms. Like it it feels like you've like you've crossed lines. Now you haven't crossed lines, and and the reason I keep you know, uh, I'm still a reporter in good standing and allowed into these rooms is like, I'm, I'm using, I'm using the polite language, but I'm using language that is normally used to describe say Hamas, like you said. Uh, but it, but I'm using it to describe either what the United States is doing or, or one of the United States client States, Israel, somebody else, uh, doing the, there's doing very similar violent things. And so they, so you can't like, openly complain that you know you're being unfair by describing you know, using the same words for these various different things that are the same just done by different people but there is this ineffable feeling in the room that like there's something different and subversive about about doing that that like that's that's outside the lines of of how we talk about this if if i were like a graduate student i would or, or, you know, if there's a graduate student out there, listen, go do a paper, like go look at the number of times October 7th was described as brutal like that. Just look for that one word brutal. And I bet you would find it in like 90 percent. Like it, it, it's become the word that you use to describe it. And then look at the number of times it's used to describe the Israeli bombing campaign or the incursion there. And I can't ima- like imagine the New York Times describing like the Israeli bombing campaign as brutal. Like it's just. It's just impossible to imagine, but it is also like just definitionally the most obvious word you could use for dropping a 2000 pound bomb in a densely populated civilian neighborhood. It's also a question of and we see this particularly with Representative Talib. It's a question of who is biased about this conflict. And specifically, Rashida Tlaib's family lives in the West Bank, which she cannot even visit as a, even as a sitting U.S. congressperson. Whenever she speaks um, with passion about the solidarity with Palestine or the freedom of the Palestinian people, I think like even people who are not directly attacking her for being like a Hamas sympathizer or, you know, terrorist adjacent will sort of talk about it in terms that like, well, she's too close to this issue. And I just want to make a point that uh, the New York Times article that I just referenced written by Isabel Kirshner, who has a byline, she's in their Jerusalem bureau. She's married to a man named Hirsch Goodman who is the senior research associate at the Jaffa Center for Strategic Studies at Tel Aviv University, where he directs the Bronfman Program on Information Strategy. This is a guy with deep ties to the Israeli government and military who just manages PR for them. And look, I'm not saying like just because someone's spouse or the job they do makes you um, unobjective in how you cover this lawyer. But I mean, look, the proof is in the pudding. Look at the article I just read you. And just like the, the credence which we should give people who are very, have very close personal ties to the state of Israel um, the ability to objectively cover a conflict of which Israel is the main party to. And a, a Palestinian civil society uh, organization or quasi-governmental organization uh, of a similar stature, e- even setting aside Hamas, let's say it's in the orbit of, of the PA, would probably be listed as a terror organization. And then anybody you know, uh, associate, related to a person who worked for them would then be designated as completely off-limits. I mean, I, I, I do want to get into the book because it has a lot of um, interesting things that are very relevant to what's going on right now in terms of how the Democratic Party attempted to kind of 
embrace with one arm and discipline with other the squad and you know and the, the hopes that they embodied as far as the democratic party go but like the, the lesson i want to talk about at least as regards to israel and the media is the repeated invocation of when they are finally pressed to a point where there's no other way for them to weasel out of it by saying, I'm not an expert, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not going to comment on ongoing things or hypothetical situations, is the staggering death toll of Palestinian civilians. And when, when, forced, when back into a corner to force to acknowledge it in any way, shape, or form, representatives of the United States government will always lean on this notion of human shields to explain away the shocking, shocking number of civilians who have been killed in this war. And I'm just wondering, like, the way in which that is always ex- just accepted or, like, we, we just sort of, like, that's a fact, we move on from it. Like, has there ever been any real reporting on whether Hamas does indeed use thousands of people as human shields in hospitals and schools? Well, uh, a human shield also only works if it, de- if it deters your attacker from attacking you. Right. No, if, if, you ha- if you're, like, in a 7-Eleven and you grab, like, a hostage and the police come in and you know that they just do not care and they're going to blow you away. That human shield is not actually a shield. Like their flesh and bones uh, will get shredded just like yours and you'll, and you'll die. And so I think once Israel made it abundantly clear in this attack that they were not going to be remotely deterred attacking an area based on civilian population being there very early on, remember they killed some like very, or they claimed to have killed some very junior level Hamas commander. Uh, in, in in that refugee camp in, in which they dropped the 2,000 pound bomb and left this like just gaping crater, like they knew that there were civilians there everywhere. And so if you know that there are civilians there and it doesn't remotely deter your willingness to attack, you know, they're, they're not actually shields. Now, I think it's tr- sh- true that Hamas lives in a, you know, it operates inside Gaza, uh, has a vast tunnel system and, you know, moves around a lot underneath that, that tunnel system. The you know IDF has a policy they call mowing the grass, where every couple of years they come in there and bomb as much kind of Hamas infrastructure as they possibly can. So it'd kind of be an odd choice to just you know build it you know, immediately right outside in some farmland, I guess. I mean, another uh, like horrifying factor of this conflict is that it, it's it stands unique among I think in the history of war in terms of how many journalists have been killed. In, in the process of, I mean, like, not just mm-hmm. killed, but, like, assassinated by the Israeli government. Yeah. It's over 100 now of, mo- of mostly Arab journalists covering Gaza. Has this sunk in among your colleagues in, in the American media or Western press? Because, I mean, like, if, they, if, these were, if these were Ukrainian journalists being killed in the same numbers, they, their faces would be all over Time magazine. They would be per- people, they would be the heroes of the millennium. Right. Yes. Oh, can you imagine if, you know, well, for one, Ukraine is like 10, 20 times bigger uh, than, than Gaza. But imagine if the, if Russians had killed 100, 200, 300 Ukrainian journalists. Yeah, they, they would have canceled the Pulitzers and not just given them like a special commendation like they did, but given them all of them. As And I'd support Pulitzers just canceling itself and just giving all the Pulitzers to, to, the, to Gaza journalists. Uh, but it, it has sunk in among colleagues in the sense of like, regular journalists who are who are covering this or other things either at the state department or the hill or elsewhere like they see that but there's a real sense of kind of powerlessness that rank and file journalists have about you know what they can what they can say uh you know a lot of them uh, you know i'm, I'm uh, lucky in the sense that there's no you know I'm, I'm not held by any social media policies or 
or, or anything else, most journalists can't just kind of say what they think about something. Uh, and and there, there's no interest higher up in, in newsrooms in, in pushing on this. Now, you, you have seen you know, organized efforts to get, you know, to sign letters and um, by journalists, you know, calling on the, you know, to kill, you know, kill fewer Palestinian journalists, please. Um, but those have, those have not come from like the top. Like you, you have not seen the the heads of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal get together and go to Biden. Like this is something that they know how to do. Like if they care, like they, they will get the president on the phone and the, the publishers and the editors in chief will all go to the White House and they will let them know that they care about, you know, X issue here and, and they will get that meeting. They haven't, I doubt they even considered asking for it. Uh, it's very, it, it's, 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 it's really something. Um, it's dark. Uh, sorry, it's a, a brutal transition here, but like what I was struck about, like by reading, by reading your book, I, which is, which is the story of like the emergence of the squad sort of like following up on your last book about like, you know, how they sort of like the money raising and the political movement that, uh, brought them into power. This is sort of about the story of like th- largely through AOC of like what it's been actually like to be in office. But here's the thing. I said it's a story of like the Democratic Party embracing with one arm and disciplining with another. But the thing that struck me about this book, which is written, you know, uh, I assume long before October 7th happened, mm-hmm. we're seeing here like I, I, I think like a demonstration of the fact that it's it, it seems in the Democratic Party or in Washington in general, the issue of Israel-Palestine is really like the fulcrum around which all power and like the disciplining of the exercise of power is exercised. By that, I mean like you can be a like fairly left wing on a lot of issues as a Democrat and you will not be called, you know, you not be called to the front of the class in the same way as if you speak out about Palestine. Conversely, you can be extremely right wing on many issues in the Democratic Party. And as long as you toe the consensus on Israel-Palestine, you are a member in good standing. Uh, could you speak to that and like some of the examples in your book of how the Israel lobby like uh, views the squad and like and their attempts through Democratic Party leadership and then organizations like Democratic Majority for Israel to discipline this what they regard as sort of like a restive wing of the party. Yeah, that's that's really well put. And the when I finished the book, I thought people are going to think I'm crazy for how much I focused on the Israel lobby here on, and, and on the, the, the way that you, know, you said it well, that everything tends to end up revolving around that because it seems crazy. Like there's so none of these candidates, including Rashida Tlaib ran on Israel, Palestine as their main issue, Rashida Tlaib, environmental justice, uh, all of them, the Bernie Sanders agenda, like that's generally, you know, what, what animated them. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in on the 2018 race where AOC, uh, you know, stumbles in her first stumbles for the first time in a major interview. And it's because she gets hit with this Israel Palestine question. And at the end of it, she literally just taps out of the interview and she says, I, I'm not a geopolitical expert. There we go. Yeah. But it, it was interesting. It wasn't as a way of like, she has like an agenda that she's trying to conceal. She's just like, you can see in her face through the interview that she thinks she might have touched some third rails, but isn't sure. And she just says like growing up, I didn't know a lot about this issue in Puerto Rican neighborhoods in the Bronx. This isn't something that we talk about. Summer Lee told me almost Except for Richie Torres's, thing. Uh, district. 
It's all they talk right. about there. Richie Torres district is different. Yeah, it's a very different district. Um, and so uh, Summer Lee said the exact same thing about about Pittsburgh. And so it, like uh, Walid Shahid uh, told me, you know, he often would get asked, like, why does Justice Democrats, he's the, you know one of the founders of Justice Democrats, why do you guys focus so much on Israel-Palestine? And he's like, we don't. Like, it wasn't even like a litmus test issue for the most part, when they were recruiting candidates, it's that the issue finds them. Like the same month that Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar are sworn in, that's when Democratic Majority for Israel gets launched in explicit like response to the rise of, of those two in particular. AOC somewhat because she had talked about you know innocent uh, unarmed people getting killed in Gaza and that was scary. Uh, like that this popular celebrity incoming freshman is, talk, is like saying nice things about Palestinians, but it was mostly Tlaib and and Omar, and it's and it was spun out of APAC basically. Uh, APAC allowed dues that you paid to DMFI, money you gave to DMFI, to count as like APAC dues. Like, you know, if you go to like the APAC conference, depending on how much money you've given over the years, you get better perks at the conference. You know, it, you get some backbench, you know, uh, meeting with a bunch of Democrats. If you've given you know a hundred thousand or whatever, a million might get you a you know a photo with Chuck Schumer or something like that. And so they they would allow donations that went to DMFI to count so you can get to, toward your like Schumer photo. And this was run by Mark Melman, who, and this is where it gets interesting. He, not only was he the guy who ran APAC's like anti-Iran deal uh, project, uh, which brought Netanyahu, you know, over to the house to, to brief, you know, to give this like joint congressional address against the wishes of the sitting president against the Iran deal. But he was also the, uh, his client was Yair Lapid, you know, who over the course of this book becomes foreign minister. And it's, at some point he becomes prime minister of Israel. He's the head of the Yesh Atid party. And, and he told me the reason he's do, going after the squad in such aggressive terms is this bank shot strategy. He would say Netanyahu uses the far left in the United States to Yeah, fear, so I was just going to ask about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah to, to like fear monger over in Israel. And so he has to like, crush the left in America to crush the right uh, over in Israel, which say what you want about the, the strategy. But is Melman an Israeli yeah. citizen? What, like, what, I'm sorry, like what other issue do which do, do which like do political parties and the people who are uh, sort of like empowered to enact an agenda do this level of 4D chess where they're like, oh, we actually have to empower the right wing in this country, even though I'm a Democrat, because our real goal is to disempower the right wing in another country, which is Israel. It's it's wild, and it, it it like it it only really works if the two countries are basically like the same, like because you can't imagine that strategy being deployed with like Ghana, like, <laughs> yeah. You know, the, Ghana, politics in Ghana is probably or not like or like you know uh, other countries with right wing governments like Hungary. Like I, I have yeah. to vote for Trump in this upcoming election because I'm really concerned about Viktor Orban's Hungary. Yeah, or and and I'm gonna support Orban because I'm so mad about AOC. Like right. you, yeah. you, it's like, you, you can only imagine that with, with Israel. And I think that's also how Melman can say that publicly and nobody at the Department of Justice is like, oh, wait, you just, you just said that your American political work here in the country was for the purpose <laughs> yes. of your client over in another country. Like if you're a lawyer at the Department of Justice and you're like, By the way, do you see this quote here where he said that his work here in the United States is on behalf of a foreign government and he's not registered as a, a foreign agent? If you br- tried to bring that up at the DOJ, you'd like that'd be the end of your career. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you suggesting here? Get out of here. 
so like like the, the book deals deals a lot with with Pelosi and like I'm mean, sorry not with Pelosi but with AOC and then like also Pelosi's relationship with the squad. How like how 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 would you characterize Pelosi and her relationship with the squad and then individual members between them? Well, she was really good at uh, divide and conquer strategy. Um, like she ended ended up forging this like shockingly close relationship with Ilhan Omar um, while having like this intense animosity uh, for for AOC. And I think so, some of this, a lot of it, was kind of legacy related for her when she, you know when she came in to leadership back in like the late nineties, early two thousands, she was like the big win for the progressive wing of the party. Like, and so her identity has always been wrapped around the fact that, you know, she's from San Francisco and she represents like progressive values inside the democratic party, even though she won from the right in her primary, um, in San Francisco. Uh, but that was all, that was always her legacy. And she would always tell, um, AOC and the, and the, and the rest of them, like, you know, I've got uh, I've got Medicare for all signs in my basement that are older than you. So it, there there was a real sense of like like wounded pride and like who do these who do these new people think they are? There's also some real MSNBC brain going on. Like I write about this lunch that uh, she and her chief of staff had the first lunch they had with Pelosi, and Pelosi's like, you know, this uh, abolish ICE thing. This is uh, this is definitely from Russia. Like this is injected into our political discourse from by Russia. And we've, and we've got to do something about that. And it's like, and both, you know, she and her chief staff were like, well, okay, wow, this is, this is an interesting level of political analysis that we're at. Cause you, you get into the room where you're with one of the most powerful people in the world and you hear that it's kind of like, Oh, yikes. What shocking disrespect to big Sean McElwood. I know. <laughs> I, I gotta ask Sean. Well, actually, yeah. maybe I'll ask him, did the Russians give you that? Yeah. Rus- it was <laughs> Ru- Russian crypto dudes. Well, in, the, in that famous picture with him and Kristen Gillibrand, there's like a, the the head of Gazprom is in the background. Aha! Uh-huh. In that picture, that might be the moment they injected it right there into the yeah. political discourse. I do like the idea that Pelosi just like she knew that that wasn't from Russia, that it was from Sean McElwee, and just didn't like him. Yeah. I'm not giving that guy credit for this. Yeah, his relentless hashtagging. <laughs> Ryan, I was I was talking before we started got got on got a sort of recording, but the in your last book when we last when one of the F times we had you on. Uh, a good chunk of it was dedicated to the antics of one Josh Gottheimer. And in, lo and behold, this book has quite a few Gottheimer anecdotes as well. But like, how, how would you describe Josh Gottheimer? Like, first of all, remind our listeners who he is. And like, how did he become appointed as like the Democratic Party's official attack dog against their own left wing and their own elect, like representatives like AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar and others? Yeah, I... I- I feel I feel bad that there's so much in the book about him because now he's going to be uh, vindicated in his paranoia. Like every every month or so, I will run into somebody in Washington, and they'll be like, "Dude, I was just talking to Josh Gottheimer, and he brought you up out of nowhere and went on like a 15 minute tirade about you and said that <laughs> like that you're just obsessed with him and it's out." And I'm like, I haven't thought about this guy in so long, uh, but now he's going to read the book and be like, "See, I knew it." I knew it. I, I earned these. I earned these three chapters. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the last time I was on here, that was really kind of uh, the introduction of this this new character. And and boy, has has he panned out? Uh, he he's a uh, Mark Penn protege who was uh, Mark Penn's intern in the Clinton administration. Mark Penn, one of the most like in, in, an, in an odious town, like one of the most odious people 
that's ever he was the running, he was the one who ran the the white working class campaign against Barack Obama. He was the one behind yes. all the the foreign Muslim stuff. And and you go on to include a very funny part of the book where after Obama becomes president, Josh Gottenheimer publishes a book about Obama's most <laughs> impl- inspirational speeches. Like if you want to make the the Pod Save Bros like sputtering with rage, just mention Josh Gottheimer. because uh, they all assumed when they were back in, on the Obama campaign that Gottheimer was the hatchet man that was doing Mark Penn's like Mark Penn would come up with the ideas and then Gottheimer would be the one that would execute it. That's how the Obama campaign understood it. And this is like passing around him photos of him in African garb, the Jeremiah, Wright. Like you, like the, they, he wrote a, me- like a uh, Mark Penn wrote a memo saying we need to own the idea of being American. Like this, like really, really, really bad stuff. Jesus and so then, yes, Christ. Gottheimer uh, publishes a book where he takes all of Obama's speeches and just writes an introduction and calls it like a <laughs> it's incredible my well, editor yeah. has book scan and was able to look it up and the good news is that it sold like hilariously close to zero copies <laughs> but it's the book still is the most appalling thing that the, the pod save crew I think has ever seen um, well, there are two stories about Gottheimer that I want to talk about. The, the, the first one sort of like relevant to discussion about how how like how, how people are, are sort of like disciplined into towing the line on Israel is the story about how when Rashida Taleb was first um, elected, she agreed to have lunch with Josh Gottheimer, who yes. then proceeded to like read her the riot act. He brought out a binder. She was like, oh, hey, like, you know, hey, like, uh, good, good to see. You. Nice to meet you. I hope we can work together. He just brings out a huge binder, slaps it on the table. And begins like pulling her press clippings about all the anti-Semitic evil things she said, and then like you, you quote her in the book being like, "Geez, like I thought, I thought I was supposed to work together with people." I mean, it's just sort of like, and just like the contempt to the idea that a Palestinian woman could be like shaken from her position or from her moral and like quite practical stand about her own family. And and the poignant part is how much grace you know she gives her colleagues. Like she shows up to this meeting. Uh, with this guy, who, you know, who's been saying the most virulent, you know, anti-Palestinian things uh, for years. And she genuinely believes that she can reach him on a human level. You know, she's, and she shows up and she immediately, um, well, she said she started with a, a joke that fell flat. He had just, I think Netanyahu had just recently again, like poo-pooed the two-state so- solution. And uh, she's like, how's that two-state solution going, Josh? And just stone it, face it, stone, yeah. just, just, just stone, stone face just crickets uh, yeah tough crowd. and then she and then she tries to talk about her grandmother like thinking she can reach him on this personal level uh, everybody's got a grandmother and just absolutely nowhere and she, yeah the white the white white binder just comes out and she said like a bunch of the quotes weren't even hers um i you can i can only imagine maybe there's some tamika mallory or linda sarsour stuff thrown in there as well um, you know, her being held responsible for everything anybody has ever said, who's like, is that she's ever been in a room with. And yeah, she, she walked, like she walked out of that, uh, she walked out of that meeting and, uh, Omar told me like she called, called her and she could tell she's crying. And she's like, if Josh tries to meet with you, like, just don't even, don't, don't do it. Like it's just, just absolutely not worth doing it. And then he spends, Josh Gottimer spends the first like six months of 2019 trying to get her and Omar censured on the house floor, like watching Rashida Tlaib get censured again after October 7th, after having kind of re-reported the first half of 2019, where they just ran this midterms in 2018 against Donald Trump and all of the, 
all the you know moral travesties that they're going to you know fight back against. And they the the amount of floor time and the amount of kind of cable news time that was dedicated to the question of you know are you going to denounce your colleague for whether or not she's an anti anti semite either Talib or Omar uh, was was shocking to kind of realize like the extent of. I mean, like uh, the the book is in a lot of ways like uh, <laughs> a repeated portrait of perhaps. Um, how unprepared for how Washington works, or just like like the 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 the, the spinning blades that these women <laughs> ran into, and I gotta say, at least from my perspective, it doesn't provide the most flattering portrayal of AOC either. That's from my perspective, particularly her quote about Elizabeth Warren, which we can get into later. Oh. <laughs> but like, uh, my question is like, despite how popular, because AOC's like her seat seems to be a lot more secure than, mm-hmm. for instance, Ilan Omar or Rashida Tlaib's seat is right now. If the Democrats could primary her and get rid of AOC, would they do that? Oh, I think they would because she has an outside base of power. And no matter what she does with it day to day, that that's a threat. Like that alone is a threat. Like the, just the very idea that there's somebody out there who could, if they decided to kind of do something different, like can get media attention, um, can can move the needle and, you know, among uh, different subgroups uh, that. That's a problem. And that and, and the fact that she inspires other people to challenge incumbent Democrats or and create space for that conversation, uh, they would they would just rather that didn't exist, no matter what she's, you know, no matter how much she tries to assure them that she really is like in it to like beat the Republicans with the Democratic Party. Like they don't want to hear it. Well, I mean, if they can't if they can't primary her. Um, like, like another strategy is the creation of their own version of AOC, which like I regard as Richie Torres, you know, the right. young guy, person of color, gay, but is like the most, probably this most, he's this, he's the congressperson from Tel Aviv. Like he's the staunchest defender of Israel and the democratic party. And you, you have a, you have an amazing line here about how he basically compares Israel to his sexual orientation. Oh God. Yeah. And like, I mean, but just like the ways in which like they like they understand that like whether she's effective as a legislator or one thing or is one is one issue. And I think she's been pretty much neutralized as is like the squad, Bernie, all of them. But the thing is, like, she still is a face and a voice that represents something of a figurehead for the left wing of opinion in the Democratic Party. So in order to counter that, I think they like they, they can't just have, you know, Pelosi or Joe Crowley b- before they can't just trot them out. So they need someone who's young and a person of color who can like counter the identity check marks that AOC has, but give voice to like the Likud party. Like where, where, where does yeah. Richie Torres come from and how does he figure into all of this? He's got an incredible, just such an incredible story. Um, and he, and he's also, he's, he's brilliant. Like he is, he's gotta be like, like just IQ wise has to be like one of the smartest, if not the smartest, like members of Congress. He's also talked openly about like mental health challenges, like manic depressive stuff. There was this, a uh, wild moment uh, where he um, was in a, he's in a manic phase where his staff couldn't reach him. And he wrote a column saying that uh, Andrew Cuomo was like the second coming of LBJ and just sent it to the New York post. And they published it like the next day. And his oh staff god. is like, the staff's like, Oh God, Richie, come on. man!" Is there, is there anyone in just Congress a- who's like, um, neuro driving on a straight line we could say. <laughs> I, that is a very that's a very good question probably in the 70s a lot of them but uh, you know they're drunk all the time uh, but worked. richie 
Yes. Richie. It all went Tom downhill Foley. after Tung Sung Park. It he did. He kept them all in line. Yeah. When they banned smoking. Uh, he, uh, Richie grew up in uh, public, uh, public housing in the Bronx. Um, a gay Afro-Latino guy. Elected, I think, at 20, early 20s to like New York City Council. Just, you know, guy on the move. Uh, and he linked up very quickly um, with both APAC and also then crypto money, which which is a weird uh, kind of detour that the, that the book has to take because of how much crypto money then flowed into the into the Democratic Party. But he was the nexus of both of those, um, Sam Bankman-Fried and the rest of the crypto dudes and and APAC money. In that uh, in that audio that I obtained that you that you talked about, uh, he's he's speaking to DMFI, and there's this the 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 things that the DMFI donors are saying about him are just so, you know, just so gross. Like, um, you know, we wish we could clone you. We need a, we need a million Richie Torres is, uh, and then he does, he goes into his thing. And if people are, have been trying to figure out how it is that he compared his sexuality to Zionism, it was that it's so dangerous in the United States to be pro-Israel that yeah, sure. pro, that supporters of Israel have to be in the closet. Right. Just just like LGBTQ people in this country. And so that's why he has this strong affinity uh, for for the state of Israel. Yeah. Who could forget all those homeless children that are um, just forced into shelters because their parents find a David Ben-Gurion <laughs> poster in their room when they're 15? <laughs> I'm, I'm really undermining my case that he's brilliant. Um but you just have to kind of take my word for it there. Well, look, I mean, like he 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 figured out where like the real nexus of power yeah. is if you want to go a lot go a long way in the Democratic Party, despite you know having no constituency or likability. Yeah, he's doing good. Oh, sorry, I, I skipped over the second uh, Josh Gottenheimer anecdote, oh, yes. which is that he wore. Uh, okay, could, could set the scene. Josh, Josh, shall we say, chose to go the extra mile in protecting himself when being in a room with a cons- potential constituents. In Patterson, New Jersey. Yes, could you, could you just yes. relay that story? Yeah. So um, Bill Pascrell is just like, he, he's turning 80. He probably been in office almost all of his 80 years in New Jersey. Uh, and he invites Gottheimer as a freshman uh, to his 80th birthday party, which is going to be at Duffy's, which is kind of, which is in Patterson, New Jersey, kind of a, kind of a dive, New Jersey dive bar. And uh, Gottheimer represents Northern New Jersey. Like he's, he's, he's up there with the insurance folks, the pharmaceutical hedge fund, private equity folks. He's, he's not down in Patterson, New Jersey, but this is the Dean of the New Jersey delegation. You can't say no, it's his 80th birthday. He, sh- he shows up, uh, with a bodyguard and a bulletproof vest on underneath his shirt. <laughs> oh my God. And he's already kind of jacked. Like he works out. Like, so like people like, was, uh, like, yeah, uh, damn, Josh, you're looking pretty, pretty, pretty brolic yeah. today. What are you, what did you, you're hitting the gym? And it's like, oh no, like, no, this is just a level four ballistics plating I have on to go to the dive bar. Yeah. Josh yeah, Gottheimer has sort of like a, a beefier Mikey Miles build. He's like yes, one yes. of those, he's, he's very short, but he has one of those bodies like short legs and shit where it's, uh, beneficial for deadlifts and stuff very yes, jealous and he of that. Put, he, he likes to put videos on social media of him of him doing like pull-ups and uh push-ups and stuff uh yes yeah, so, and so people immediately are like bro are you wearing a bulletproof vest and they're just like <laughs> they're just razzing him about it for a while and then eventually duffy who is like a freeholder so like this is like he's a elect, local elected official and it's the 
it's the congressman's birthday party. It's like not, it's probably not going to be that dangerous, but the, the <laughs> never Duffy, him, Duffy himself comes over and he's like, get out of my bar. Like you are an <laughs> asshole. Like, get, get out. And so I, I went to, um, the, the congressman whose birthday it was and asked him about it. And he, and what I loved, what I love about how people relate to Gottheimer is that he just told me the story on the record. He's like, yep, that happened. He's like, but I told Terry, I was like, the guy's an idiot, but he's going to be an idiot whether you throw him out or not. What's it going to prove by throwing him out? Like, let's, let's just, just leave him around here and what, who's, you know, who's he going to hurt? Uh, and so they ended up letting, letting Gottheimer stay at the, at, at the 80th birthday party. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I just, you know, you can never be too safe, you know? Yeah, that's true. You never, you never know. Yeah. What if he ended up being the only guy that survived the Duffy's shooting? Like, wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't we all look like idiots? <laughs> uh, uh, God, I wish you start wearing those suits that they give John Wick that are just regular suits, but they're bulletproof, you know, yeah. like, uh, yeah, that was, was all know, like, just his, that was just his beef. Yeah. Um, I guess like uh, another another story that uh, that you relate in the book that I think was kind of a turning point for which like a, a, cert, a certain segment of former AOC supporters or like the left kind of soured on her was her present vote for the Iron Dome funding. And this goes back to Israel like and her and like, you know, how distressed she was over that vote and like like the back and forth of there. Could, could you relay? like the AOC Iron Dome funding and like, and just like the, the push and pull there in AOC's own, I don't know, like her own internal political and moral calculus on that vote. Yes. And the, the fun little backstory on that is that Yair Lapid, you know, Mark Melman's client was foreign minister at the time and literally got on the phone with Steny Hoyer to like demand the vote. Like that's how, that's how that vote happened is your, your and uh, Hoyer, Yair Lapid later told the Israeli press this, but, uh, Hoyer also directly said that to to Bowman and to to Omar, who when they were calling for him to, can you just delay this vote? Let's let's think about this. And he's like, no, I promised Israel. Like this is like this this vote is happening. And so going in, there's like nine or ten people who are going to vote no on this thing, and it's totally symbolic. Like the billion dollar number is just made up. That was twice as much as the Iron Dome had spent in the last in its like entire existence. It was just, it was just, a, it, and it, it still has never gone through the Senate. It wasn't like intended to like actually get to Israel's just to make, just to make a point. And so, yeah, AOC goes on the floor and she votes no. Uh, and then she comes into the cloakroom and she sees, uh, she sees Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and they can tell that she's like, you know, in, in feelings about it. And she's like, look, I, I just, I don't, I don't think I can go through with this. Like, and basically the argument she was making was, she wanted to be a peacemaker back in her district. She wanted to be able to bridge the, the two sides here. And she's like, I, I can't, I got to go change my vote. And Omar tells her like, Alex, do whatever you want. Just don't go out there and cry. And, and Rashida's like, Oh, Ilhan, stop telling people not to cry. Come on. What are you doing? She's got to cry. She's got to cry. And I mean, she goes out there. I, I mean, I got to agree yeah. with Omar there. I mean, politics is like baseball. Like, I don't want to see any tears from any elected representative. Yeah. And so she went out there and did not take Omar's advice. Um, and what, what Pelosi told her, like, people always wonder what Pelosi told her that, like, kind of triggered it. And all Pelosi said was that, you know, she said basically Hoyer, Hoyer wanted this vote. I didn't want this vote. Just vote your conscience. And then she, and she switched to present and she then later put out a statement like explaining that point that like uh she she felt like if she didn't vote present she wouldn't be able she wouldn't be welcome like 
in the local Jewish community and then wouldn't be able to kind of bring people together, which I write, I write in, I think in that passage or somewhere around it, that, that that's like one of her central contradictions that she wants to be both the like leader of yeah. a political revolution, but also wants to be a consensus builder and no human can like be both of those things. I mean, especially not like, I mean, you know, like, and it's like, you know, AOC has been, you know, in, in, has AOC become out in favor of a ceasefire? Yeah, she has, right? Yeah, very early. Okay, yeah. so like, I'm, so like, yeah, like I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying like AOC is like Richie Torres. It's just like, I, I guess like my frustration with her as a political figure is I keep wondering, I keep asking myself, it's like her seat is secure. Like, haven't you realized by now that these people aren't going to let you do anything? So like what, I just don't get what benefit like there is to her to continuing to try to curry favor or be a consensus That's builder the, with these people. That that was the uh, fight that she was always having with uh, Corbin Trent, her communications director, and who another founder of Justice Democrats, who you know got pushed out, ha- you know, halfway through the first year. And he, he he would make that exact point to her. He said that you can't you can't get small enough for them to be okay with you. Like they they hate you. They hate you for how you got here. You took out Joe Crowley. They hate you for what you represent. They will always hate you for that. You have a massive power base out there that you can deploy in, in your service. Uh, they, and they hate you for that. But there's no amount of, like exactly like you said, uh, there's, not, there's no amount of charm that's going to get them to accept you into their club. Like it's not, it's not happening. Yeah, with uh, AOC, um, in the first like year after she was sworn in, I very generously um sort of thought that the problem was especially after um i don't know if you remember when she met with um like it was four goofy constituents who supported the coup in bolivia i i you know that that it was a very embarrassing thing uh but you know i generously thought okay maybe she has this problem that a lot of people in this very nascent america new american left have where you know, anytime someone who's ostensibly on their side, even if they're not, even if they're just cynical operators, they feel like they immediately have to respond to criticism. And I, I thought, okay, in the best case scenario, that's the problem here. Um, years on, I, I don't know that I would say that she's like fully, a you know, horrible, cynical operator 100% of the way. But I think we could safely say it's beyond just an oversensitivity. Um, there's, you know, the regular amount of ass covering you would see in any U.S. rep, which is, I mean, not an exoneration because her entire reason to be was that she wouldn't do that. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, she, she was kind of miscast for the role. Like, and she t- talks about that a little bit in the book that like, in some ways, there was uh, a marriage of convenience between kind of the Justice Democrats, the the, the left, um, and and her her campaign. Like she had she had no other path at the time. Like New York politics just completely completely shuts you out, especially if you have you know progressive inclinations, which which she did. You know she went to she, I think she decided to run like while she was out at Standing Rock, and so she has you know she has progressive like I values and there's just no path in new york city for that and so the only path was as this like burn down the house insurgent but that really wasn't kind of who she felt she was like she she was willing to uh, you know occupy nancy pelosi's office probably one of the most impactful things 
you know, she's done in her career, put it, which really took the Green New Deal from obscurity to kind of on the global on the global map. Um, but but felt ambivalent about it, you know, the the entire time. There there are some, you know, where, whereas somebody like an Omar leans in a little more to to the conflict and is more comfortable in the conflict. And some of it, I think, just does does come down to that. I I mean, like I I I that kind of makes her sound worse because it's like. Well, like, I'm sorry, but like, you don't, you don't have to be a politician. That's not something you need to do. This isn't like, um, I mean, it's not like you're breaking into like acting or something and you're, you've been typecast. Like you, you went out there and I remember in her, in her first campaign, like she was very explicit about things like Israel, Palestine. She, you know, used a very specific set of, uh, set of language to describe her positions and it's like it's i mean okay if this was the only way for her to get in well like okay i'm sorry but <laughs> that, that well that's like that's the fucking yeah. that's the fucking job uh, the, the example from the book that i think like best illustrates like the, the 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 split in like how people conceive of aoc or how she conceives of herself as like a progressive versus what I would regard as like progressive, socialist, Democrat, liberal or whatever. There's what you call yourself in like then like it, you represent an agenda. Did you run an agenda? And do you have the sand to see that agenda through? And I think like the the, the quote here from the book that, you know, I, I think illustrates where her head out is on this is when she talks about uh, the fact that she was worried that uh, Bernie's supporters and look, you can take there's a fair amount of self-motivated reasoning here. So please, like I'm indebted by this. So like take <laughs> take this with a grain of salt. But she says here, uh, speaking of Bernie supporters, uh, it's frustrating to feel like they are hurting him. She said at the time, I feel like Warren is scooping up LGBT progressives, women and progressives of color because of how they isolate. And I got to say, AOC if she ever, if she ever actually believed that Elizabeth Warren was scooping up anyone, I, I'm sorry, I got no confidence in your ability to deal with Washington. It also there shows like how wild those presidential campaigns were. There was there, there's that moment where you know Warren, I think it was like maybe a 36 hour period where she's like leading the race and and Bernie is like in the hospital almost dead. Um, now this is, this is, this is before that, but, you know, Bernie was struggling and it was AOC speaking at his rally in Queens saved him through a large degree. I was there. Yeah. Yeah, it did. It did. And then, uh, Rashida and Omar getting in, you know, shortly after that, that was, they, they, they brought him, you know, back from the dead, like from 10, 15% to, you know, on, on the brink of, uh, on the brink of winning the nomination. And that was also part of the reason that she was, that she and the rest of the squad spent some of 2019 being less kind of firebrand than they might've otherwise been. Cause they were trying to like assure the like resistance dem MSNBC watchers that burn, that Bernie would be a safe choice for them. Like he's not, don't worry, Bernie, Bernie's not going to hurt you. Uh, we're all, we're all on the same team together. Um, but yeah, what she's seeing there, well, a, you know, Warren has, you know, she's very good. Warren's very good at what Bernie's not good at. You know, like like Bernie says, I'm not calling you on your birthday. You know, Warren's going to call you all the time. Um, also, Warren picked up a lot of the, the support at the top. If you remember, a lot of the leaders of like DC based progressive organizations were all kind of Warren supporters, while their kind of staff and their and and what grassroots base they might have had were Bernie supporters. So she's seeing some of that at the at the at the same time. She's also constantly uh, marinating in uh, anger from her colleagues about 
either quote unquote Bernie bros or her own staff who she was allowing, um, a, you know, super long leash that first year, uh, to just like lambast the speaker and other members of Congress, uh, by name. So she's, so like, she's feeling all the heat for that and then, uh, reflecting it back. I mean, I guess like what, what I take away from this is not that like, oh, like uh, she's a terrible person or what a joke or we were all con, but like, I just lack the confidence in like, anyone who wants to claim the standard for like not even a socialist agenda, but just a basically progressive or social democratic agenda in Washington, DC, you cannot do that and not make enemy and not be willing to make enemies of the democratic party and the media that supports them. Like there's just, there's no two ways about it. And to go even further now, post October 7th, you can't even make a stand for the basic principles of humanity without making enemies of the democratic party and the uh, sort of, New York Times liberal media establishment. And, and like, if, if those are your values and you want someone to uphold those values, like, I, you can't, I don't think you can have confidence in them if they continue to try to, like, I don't know, like, work within the system or play nice with, you know, MSNBC, CNN, New York Times, and the entire leadership of the Democratic Party. I guess that, I mean, well, that, that's what I took yeah, away from your book. No, yeah, and, yeah, and post-October 7th is going to force this question in, a, in an interesting way because you're going to have 2024 APAC, you know, coming at every, probably not AOC because they probably can't get a candidate that's viable, probably not Presley, um, but everybody else, you know, they're coming for plus anybody who's ever kind of said anything nice about them in the past. You know, I write about how they went after Andy Levin, uh, you know, pro labor congressman in, in Michigan uh, and a former synagogue president because he, he was supportive of, you know, he would defend Rashida Tlaib sometimes. And they're like, we can't have that. He's former synagogue president. That's too much credibility. We need to get, get, so they wipe, they wipe him out. They wipe, they're going to, they're going to expand. And they the just announced about a hundred million dollars that they're going to go through, throw at the squad this upcoming yeah, election. An enormous amount of money. Um, cause you know, they did spend five to $7 million against gen, like innocuous progressives. Like you remember Donna Edwards, like when she was in yeah. the house, uh, she, uh, voted against Israel in one vote. Uh, in like 2008 around that war and they have hated her since then. So she came back, she was trying to run for her old seat. She was up 50 points with a couple of months left to go and they dropped $7 million against her, which nobody's ever seen like $7 million spent in like a house race. Uh, so it's not hard to get to a hundred million dollars um, spending it, spending at that, at that amount. But that's also then going to force all of those uh, members of Congress to like join together. Like they, they they have to realize at this point that they they're they're they hang together or they hang separately. And what like how would you rate the chances of some of those seats being turned over by this effort? I high. would say pretty good at this point, right? Very high. high. I think Jamal Bowman is vulnerable to redistricting, uh, which means you know his fate is somewhat in the hands of uh, New York Democratic leadership, which is not how okay, you want to well, be. Yeah, he's Jamal fun. Bowman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Corey Bush is facing Wesley Bell, who's this progressive kind of prosecutor. I think he had like Soros money when he, when he first ran. And he, when, he, when he saw how much APAC opposition there was going to be to Cori Bush, he dropped out of his Senate race, uh, jumped into the House race, and has been you know, talking about our, you know, our special relationship with Israel. They have not managed to find anybody credible, despite dangling $20 million in front of two different people against Rashida Tlaib. Um, Omar's at risk. Uh, but right now she has two candidates opposing her, which is good for an incumbent. It splits the vote. We'll see if they can. If, we'll see if they can sort that out. Summer Lee, they're definitely gunning for her. 
and we'll see if they come for even Max Frost, you know, who's a uh, character in the book, but uh, has been critical of Israel since getting elected. So they, they, I, I assume that they're regretting kind of giving him a pass. I guess, I guess like, you know, and, and, and I, I, I fully expect them to be successful electorally with the amount of money that they spend and like the media on their side. I suspect that they're going to get some of these scalps. But my question is, what good is that going to do them in the long run? What good is that going to do them in the short term of just the 2024 presidential election? Because you can replace these representatives and you can like put the media into crank it into overdrive to support Joe Biden and pretend that we're doing anything other than supporting a genocide right now. But the thing is, public opinion on this, particularly among people under the age of 40 or 30, especially, is dramatic on this. And like, do they have any conception of how to deal with it, like of, of turning this ship around? Or is it just a matter of like, they don't really need to care about public opinion? Well, for APAC, uh, which is driving a lot of this, that's a feature, not a bug like that. This is mostly, you know, right wing money at this point. Um, Republic, you know, partisan Republic, a lot of partisan Republican money coming into these, these primaries. So if it, if it also depresses turnout for Democrats, that that's a bonus, uh, for them. But yeah, the, the, the Democratic party looked like they had a coalition, you know, that was coming together because for the first time in forever, young people actually were liberal, not just the media thought they were liberal, um, but they were actually voting more in more progressive numbers uh than uh than previous young generations they seem like they're just willing to just totally squander that for for what like for netanyahu a guy who wants to see biden lose anyway it's it's quite something i mean like i mean from one perspective you could be like yeah like they're willing to commit suicide on behalf of the right-wing party ruling a foreign country but it's not really about Israel, right? I mean, it's about the United States of America. It's about our empire. It's about does this country run the world or not? Because I think like that's really what's at stake here. Uh, certainly with this the, the genocide case in South Africa, however it gets decided one way or another, and it'll probably take years before there's any you know, like definitive resolution here. But like, it, it's unquestionable that the United States of America is on trial now, in the, not, not just literally in a court, but in the court of public opinion. And it's hard to see... You know, I mean, like, like that, that I think is why we're going to like, like I said, to these sui- the Democratic Party as well, like is going to suicidal like lengths to right. enforce this consensus on Israel, because it's not really a consensus on Israel. It's a consensus on like, does the United States of America have the right and ability to, to rule the world? And meanwhile, we might undermine our ability to rule the world. Like you could you can envision oh, a absolutely. scenario where we take our dominant position in the Middle East uh, and somehow squander it. Um you know, as a result of this, this genocide case and what could, what could flow, flow out of that. If the, if the Abraham Accords were our, like our effort to like lock all this down, uh, that it's not looking so good for us. All right. Uh, Ryan Grimm, we'll leave it there. I want to thank you for your time. The book is the squad AOC and the hope of a political revolution. Uh, lots of really interesting stuff and anecdotes in that book that we didn't get a chance to, uh, discuss on today's show, but, uh, check out the book and Ryan, thanks again. Thanks again for going to the State Department and facing doing it because, you know, like I'm screaming at my laptop, shut the fuck up and just doing the jag off (laughs) motion until like, you know, my wrist breaks. But, you know, I'm glad I'm I'm glad someone is professional enough to like, you know, to sit there. It's all we have left, but it's worth doing. All right. Once again, Ryan Grimm, thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, guys. 